This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Greatest birth announcement ever penned, and in honor of that, would you stand? This is from the Gospel of Matthew. And what a great moment it was when Matthew wrote, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful, glorious truth. How I love this season of the year for what it stands for, but most of all to whom it points to. And we give you praise for that this day as we celebrate this wonderful season that speaks of new life, not only in a manger, but in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start with a picture, and if you see that picture, you're probably wondering, why are these people smiling? The reality is they have no reason to smile. They live in a really small, out-of-the-nowhere, backside-of-nowhere kind of town of population 616. It's a community that's had a lot of heartache and a lot of trouble. They're cotton farmers, cattle farmers, and yet for the last three years, they've been awash in a three-year drought, a boll weevil plague, and crashing cattle prices. If you were to go into the center of their little town, you would find on the most expensive piece of property a crudely built sign that says, Clothes for sale, 10 cents to $1. Well, that tells it all, doesn't it? Average income of this little community is less than $20,000. All through the little town, there are boarded up buildings that really speak of the families who, at some point in time, finally gave up on this town, decided it wasn't worth it anymore, boarded up the doors and windows, and left. And yet, Those people there are smiling. In fact, they look pretty good, don't they? They look relaxed. In the front of the picture is Manuel and Susie Valdez. They're the owners of the little restaurant there in town called Susie's Fish and Grill. Last month, they had $136 to their name. In fact, they were about to give the whole restaurant back to the bank. But there they are in their restaurant with all these other folks smiling. Why? Well, it started when Peggy Dixon, who was the controller of the local cotton mill, was in the restaurant one day and they were just talking about desperate times and desperate circumstances and how they needed a Texas-sized miracle. And she said, why don't we put up some money for the lotto? And some people laughed and scoffed and whatever, but they finally passed the hat and some people dropped $10 in the hat and she went out and bought for those people $430 of lotto tickets, one of which came back just a few weeks ago worth $46.7 million. So what you see smiling in the restaurant there, 
39 millionaires. That's who's there. 39 people who, for the next 20 years, will get $55,000 a year in this Texas-sized miracle. Now, what you don't see are the two guys who were in the restaurant that day that didn't drop any money in the hat. <laughs> see, they're on the other side of backside of nowhere in a Texas-sized depression, really in trouble. Now, I offer that story because it parallels another no-name town. In fact, I've entitled the sermon, A Tale of Two Towns. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2, because what happened in this little community of Roby, Texas, also happened, at least in principle, to a little town called Bethlehem. In fact, Roby, Texas mirrors Bethlehem in its insignificance. Let me read to you the first seven verses of Luke. It says, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were complete for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we know of that as the great Christmas story, but I wonder, how many of you have been to Bethlehem? Let me just see your hands. Anybody been to Bethlehem? Yeah, there are a few of us who've been to Bethlehem. In fact, last year we were in Bethlehem, and the reason I compare it to Roby, Texas is because it's a lot like Roby, Texas. Bethlehem is the kind of city that rolls up the sidewalks at six. It's the kind of town that if you were to drive through with its one stoplight, if you blinked your eyes, you'd be already through it and out in the shepherd's fields. It's that quick and it's that small, and it's been that insignificant for centuries. For you to know anything about Bethlehem would take a Texas-sized miracle. And of course, that's what in fact occurred. Probably the last place that Joseph and Mary wanted to go was to Bethlehem. I mean, she was with child, they were engaged, there was controversy, and then the government comes in and intrudes and tells them that they have to go back to Joseph's, Joseph's birthplace, or the birthplace of his family, his family line, that of David, and register for this census. But I want you to listen, because even there, there's a principle. What started out to them as an inconvenience, what started out to them as a major, major kind of uh, problem with poor timing and government intrusion, what maybe they didn't even know as they were wrestling with all the things that were breaking forth in their life is that behind Caesar Augustus' decree was a God who is always moving behind the curtains of history, shaping it to make things happen in such a way as to both preserve man's free will and to bring about the conclusions of the promises of His Word. You see, God had promised that the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. And I don't know if Joseph would have ever thought to go there but God moves circumstances to move them there. And I say that to remind us all in the midst of a hectic Christmas season that there are going to be times in our life where things are going to come out of nowhere that becomes a huge inconvenience of poor timing and intrusion and maybe even crisis that reshapes your whole life. But behind many of those things is the same God shaping history, shaping your history, moving you to a place that He promised that He wanted you to go, and that is this spiritual adventure 
And sometimes it's only years later do we look back on the fact that God one day caused you to have to move from your hometown to another town, or He brought a crisis into your life, or something happened that caused you to reconsider your whole life. But behind that was the God who says, I'm going to fulfill my word, and my word is that this person needs a spiritual adventure. And that's what happens to these people. So Roby mirrors Bethlehem in that both became famous, not because of the community itself, but really in spite of the community. It's what happened in the community, the miracle that took place that gave it its notoriety. Secondly, I want you to notice that Roby mirrors, at least in this day, these day 2,000 years ago, the same kind of people in the sense of they were oppressed and desperate. It wasn't because cattle prices had fallen, but it was because these people labored under two ongoing extreme hardships. They had a Roman tyranny that taxed them and terrorized them. I mean, can you imagine living under a government that on the whim of an of a, uh, insane king, that soldiers would go about your neighborhood murdering your firstborn son? And yet that's what these people grew up under. On a whim, they could take away your children. They were taxed. They were oppressed. And on top of that, they had a bankrupt religion of dead ritual and spiritual compromise and hypocrisy that created even a greater oppression of hopelessness. In Bethlehem, in Nazareth, in Jerusalem, people didn't have boarded up buildings, but they had boarded up hope. Where was all this going? It seemed to be going nowhere. Thirdly, I want you to know, like Roby, Bethlehem was offered the opportunity of a miraculous deliverance. It was a miraculous deliverance. It wasn't in a ticket, but it wasn't a child. Look at verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly this angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news in this desperate time. Good news. i got some good news for you. Of great joy, which shall which is Christ the Lord. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. In these terrible times, in these desperate circumstances, this incredible risk of faith, a child is going to be the deliverance. Now, if that sounds too good to be true, you know what? It still sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? to people all over our community to say that what is our hope, what is our saving grace is a child who entered the world, Christ the Lord, still sounds too good to be true. You'll find people all the time who will in frustration, just like in those baptisms when they get confronted with the Christian faith, they will say, you mean not having Jesus Christ is what's missing in my life? <laughs> That's my ticket out? You mean what's missing in Jesus Christ is why my life's off course, why my marriage is on the rocks, why I feel this internal sense of pressure all the time, especially as I get older. I get angrier. I get more depressed. Life seems to be closing in on me. I got confusion and powerlessness in my life over my problems. You mean Jesus Christ is the answer to that? You mean Jesus Christ is why I'm missing out on life and why I find myself defending myself more and more to my friends and family whose accusations of me is that I'm selfish and proud and foolish and uncaring and insensitive? And you know what? The answer is probably yes. Yeah, that's why. And you're in need, just as these people were in need, 
to go beyond themselves and take a huge risk. At least in this day, it was a huge risk to buy into a child. In our day, it's to buy into a Savior, Christ the Lord, the full man. You know, in Bethlehem, to find out if Jesus was true required a wager of faith. I want you to look at verse 18. The shepherds went and talked to everyone about what they had seen. And it says in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, I want you to underline that word wondered. It's an interesting word. They wondered at the things told them. I want you to know this. Wondering is not wagering. See, this was a great moment in Israel's history and they just kept wondering. But they weren't wagering. Wondering has no element of faith or commitment in it. Wondering by its very nature, as you know, is indecisive. There are people all over America today going to church, listening to sermons like this, and, and the reality is that in their heart of hearts about the Christian faith, though they've been in church maybe all their life, they're still wondering. They hadn't wagered anything. They hadn't put it all on the line. They hadn't bet on Jesus in life. I'm sure the 616 residents of Roby, Texas, wondered whether a lotto ticket could deliver them. There finally came a moment where 39 of them decided to wager in faith. And now there's 577 of those people who are no longer wondering anymore about the outcome. They're weeping. They're not wondering. The others are laughing. They're in great joy all the way to the bank. Now, why do I say that? Because I want you to go out and buy a lotto ticket? No, that's not part of the, part of the deal here. It's just part of the illustration. But what I do want you to do is ask yourself, are you still wondering about the Christian life? Are you still deliberating about it? You find yourself coming like Raman and others who have declared their faith today, who went through a process where they watched other people, but they just wondered at it. How long will it take for you to move to a place? That's what the Scriptures keep crying out. To a place where you buy in deeply and completely into Bethlehem's miracle. How long are you going to wonder about really following Jesus Christ? That's what Christmas brings back up to us every year. How long will you wonder at it like these people? You know, if you want to wonder at anything, what I always wonder about when I read the Christmas story is the people in verse 18. What happened to them? What happened to the ones who had the privilege of being a part of this unique moment in history and wondered it away. Where are they? And what kind of regret do they have now? You know, I want you to consider for a moment what it would take you or any person to buy into Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord. I want you to wonder with me for a minute what it would take to buy in all the way as a serious follower of Jesus Christ with a heart filled, bent with a desire for God, whose cornerstone in life is to be pleasing to God, who's constantly thinking in terms of how I should discover God this day. You know, there are people who live that way. They call them intrinsic believers who have what George Gallup did in a poll not long ago, a really exciting life. But he also found with those intrinsic believers who possessed this faith, really possessed it, that there was a large body of church attenders who had extrinsic faith. It was all out here. It was all in terms of the external attendance and whatever. But their lives 
day-to-day didn't look much different than anybody else's. What Christmas calls us to is not to wonder at the Christ child, it's to embrace Him. It's to love Him. It's to live for Him. That's what Christmas is all about. But what would it take for you to buy into that? Would it take proof? Do you need more proof? You know, you can get proof from a number of sources. I want to offer to you this morning the proof of prophecy. You know, the Bible presents Jesus Christ as a supernatural person, born of the Holy Spirit. It also presents itself as a supernatural book. And one of the ways it substantiates that is by foretelling events hundreds of years before they take place. And since we're in the Christmas season, here's one of the prophecies that was spoken by this prophet Micah 730 years before Jesus Christ ever appeared. Here's what he said. He said, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And we know that. We've already talked about too little. It's still too little. From you, one will go forth from me for me to be ruler in Israel. He'll be the ruler of Israel. But he's not going to be just an ordinary ruler. He's got something unique. It'd be one thing to just be a ruler. David came out of Bethlehem. But this ruler, his, his goings forth will be long ago from the days of eternity. Now I can just imagine through the centuries, men wrestling with who that was. In fact, over in Matthew, when Herod finds out a child's been born, he consults you know, his wise men and they say, you know, the prophet said a child's going to be born in Bethlehem who's going to be the ruler. And he's going to be an eternal ruler. And that scared him to death because he was so insecure about his own kingdom. Later on, when Jesus debated with the Pharisees, they said, we're, we're children of Abraham. Jesus, in a moment maybe of frustration, said, listen, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The eternal ruler whose going forth have been long ago from the days of eternity. And here's a prophet telling us that 730 years, that these events that we celebrate today were going to occur outside His realm of control. And you know, I can tell people that, and they can look at that, and they still think there's got to be a catch to it. Do you know of any other book who's prophesied consistently over and over again, hundreds of years before the events, and the Scriptures are filled with prophecies, not just of His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, over and over it is. And yet, learned men can look at that and they still go, I don't know if I'm ready to buy in. I can't make sense of it. I can't explain it away, but I don't know if I'm going to buy in. Well, what about then the proof of archaeology? I mean, do you need something from secularists that's more helpful in that regard? Some people do. You know, over and over again, uh, you'll find archaeology substantiating our faith. In fact, here's a headline just from this week. You can't read it up here, but I'll read it. It says, Excavations at Biblical Sites Suggest Faith Not Misplaced. Wow. We hadn't, we're not fools after all, guys. And it starts out this way. It says, Amnon ben Tor is an archaeologist who doubts anything he can't dig up. He takes nothing in the Bible on faith. And yet standing in a trench on a hot barren mountainside, he stares into the fire-blackened stone and he sees an army destroying the Canaanite city of Hazor 3,200 years ago, just as it says in the book of Joshua. And the, the article goes on to show over and over again how archaeologists suddenly are finding things all over Israel that tell us that the things in the Bible were not misplaced at all. They tell us about Pontius Pilate being real by covering, um, uncovering an amphitheater with Pontius Pilate's name on it when scholars have said for years he wasn't a real person. 
We found out here recently, if you can believe this, I didn't even know this, that scholars, great scholars around the world, have always doubted the existence of King David. Which kind of surprised me, but in the article here it says that uh, last year, Seymour Gittin of the W.F. Albright Institute of Archaeological Research in East Jerusalem came across what is now considered one of the greatest finds of the 20th century. In 1993, Israeli archaeologists digging in Tel Dan in the Golan Heights unearthed a piece of stone from an ancient monument and inscribed in it, in ancient Aramaic, were the words, King of Israel, House of David. And then they found other inscriptions that had David written all over it. I didn't even know that people doubted King Herod. The king in the gospel story was not a real person. But this account says that, you know, scholars have doubted that he was just a concoction of some Christian fanatics. Except this summer, archaeologists sifting through a 2,000-year-old garbage dump at Masada in southern Israel unearthed a wine jug and inscribed on the name of the jug was King Herod. And on and on it goes. The conclusion of the article says, How reliable is the Bible? Herschel Shanks, editor of Biblical Archaeological Review, asked rhetorically, The answer is, it has a sound historical core. Is that proof enough? See, oftentimes we can be brought that even closer but our wills struggle in buying in deeply into the Christ child, just as they did in the first century where they just wondered. How about from historians? We have the words of Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew who was born in 37 AD, right after the time of Christ. By the end of the century, in 90 AD, he was an eminent Roman historian who had eyewitness accounts of what happened around Jerusalem. I want you to listen to one of his statements out of his book, Antiquities, that was probably written in 90 to 100 A.D. Here's what he says. Now, there was about this time, speaking of the first century, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, and he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive after the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Now let me ask you, who are you going to trust? A 20th century historian or a 1st century one? And what is it going to take for you to buy in? Do you need changed lives rather than proof? You know, what was so wonderful about the service today is you have skeptics who become believers, standing up, willing to go through a foolish kind of drama of you dunking them in water. But it's not a foolish drama to them anymore. It is the most powerful reality that they know because what they've done is they have found a new life. The old has passed away, buried in, with Christ in baptism. The new has come. It's new. I have a new opportunity to life and standards. I have a new purpose. I have a new direction. I have a new God. It's Christ, the Lord. If that's not good enough, what about buying in because of your own desperate dead ends? You know, probably the one of the greatest megaphones of turning to Christ is when life finally doesn't work for us anymore. In, in time, life gets too big to handle. The failures begin to mount up. I talk to people all the time who were so smart, thought they had it all figured out, laughed at those who would follow superstitious gods and fall back on an antiquated Christianity. And yet over time, they hurt people. They hurt people. 
with their sophisticated, intelligent lives. And you know what? People hurt them. And it hurts bad. And they begin to discover how little power they really have over their life and their habits and their problems. And they begin to be confronted by their own foolishness in time. And as they get older, all those simple, quick answers that they had to life don't work anymore. And so they begin to find that they got big questions and no answers at all. Everyone, everyone hits the wall at some time in life. And when you finally hit the wall, you got to start asking questions that you can't escape. And it brings you to a point where you have to take some leap of faith in some direction with life closing in. I love what one older man said in men's fraternity. We we're sitting in a group with a bunch of younger men. And uh, he's a scientist by training. He's a scholar. He's a success in his career. He's had a full range of experiences. But in this one powerful moment in front of these young men, he said this, after three marriages, I came to know that I didn't know. And so it brings you to a place knowing you don't know where are you going to go. Where are you going to go? If you've hit a desperate dead end in your life, if it's not working anymore, why keep doing what you've been doing which only guarantees the same results? Why not try something different? Why not look to the manger? Why not look to Bethlehem's miracle? Why not look to Jesus, the Savior of the world? That's what He's there for. He came into this world to fully give us His life. But for us to buy into that, we have to fully give Him ours. That's the deal. That's the ticket. Well, if proof or changed lives or desperate dead ends don't work, then how about the face of death? You know, we're all terminal. We're all terminal. And are you prepared to enter eternity buying into the position that we're simply a cosmic accident. One of the disturbing trends in our culture today is with the value of life going down, you see people who aren't asking the hard questions anymore. They just assume this is all there is and I'm going to live for just those ends. But let me ask you, isn't there something in you that feels repulsed at the thought that, there, that this is all there is? I want you to know there is. Sure there is. There's something in you. And the reason is, is because, as the Scripture says, God sets eternity in our hearts. There is something instinctive within us that repudiates a meaningless existence. We know instinctively they, there's more. That this is not all there is. That there's something eternal. And every culture of every age in human history portrays on their cave walls, in their kingdoms, and in their modern societies this reach out for something more. But what is it? And what kind of eternity are we grasping for? Jesus says, Jesus says that He knows. And Jesus says that He is. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. I am the bread of life. And he who eats of this bread shall live forever. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you can be also.
That's what was in the manger. That's what was in the life. It was the light of eternal life. These are incredible claims. They're a lot bigger than the Texas-sized miracle in Roby, Texas. But it requires for you to buy in with faith. There finally comes a place where just like those people taking that lotto ticket that you've got to take Jesus Christ for what He says. And that takes a commitment of faith. But listen, people are so afraid of going outside themselves. They're so afraid of what their friends might think or family might think or where Jesus might lead them that they always keep a certain hand on their own accelerator that they can move away if necessary. But that's wondering. That's not faith. Listen to what the angel says. Don't be afraid. See, the first thing the angel addresses is our fear of letting go. Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Christ, the Lord. And he who believes in Him shall have forgiveness of sin. And he who believes in Him shall have God as His Father. And he who believes in Him shall have the Holy Spirit as His Helper. And he who believes in him shall have eternal life and life everlasting. Jesus quietly entered, he quietly entered human history to change it. And he entered human history to give his life away to any who would hear his claims. But you know what he doesn't do? In laying all those treasures that I've just announced, he doesn't put them in your hands. He simply lays them at your feet. And you, in faith, to experience it in the fullest, have to reach down and buy into it yourself. Let's pray together. And you know, as we pray this morning and close our eyes, for those of you who are here this morning and maybe for one reason or another, this great Christmas season, it's passing you by the real reason, as they say, for the season. I wonder, do you need a Savior to undo the life that you've made for yourself? Do you need a Lord to lead you into real life instead of the dead ends that you find yourself at? Do you need a God who can touch your life in a new way, in a fresh way? Do you feel an impulse towards Him this morning? You can't manufacture it, but if you feel it, perhaps God is calling you to do more than wonder. Maybe He's calling you to embrace Him fully in real faith and allow Him to show you that you don't need to be afraid anymore. But where He wants to lead you, who He wants you to become, what He wants to offer, and where He wants to take you are the things of life. Let me ask you, if you feel that way this morning, would you pray with me? It's just a simple prayer. God is not interested in your words so much, but He is interested in a person who would throw themselves on Him. Would you open up your heart and say, Lord, I need You to come into me? Just like Steve, just like Sidney, just like Ryman, just like Bill, Lord, I need You to come into me. To forgive me of my sins, I know I'm all too well. To begin to show me a new way of life that exceeds religious duty.
to begin to touch me in such a way that I know that I know the living God. If you ask Him that with the faith that you have, the God who has given Himself totally into human history will not leave that prayer alone, I promise you. But He will engage you from the heart in the days and weeks ahead. He will bring you that new life of salvation. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to celebrate in baptism new life and song new life and from Your Word new life. And I pray that if one or more people here in simple faith took You up on Your offer, Lord, I pray with all my heart that You would make Yourself known to them in some very special way so that they would have confirmed to them that the proclamation of the angels was not theory, but the most incredible reality that man has ever known. God with us. God with us. We thank You. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.